Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another lovely day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Andrew Whiting, chairman of Beach's Fine Chocolates. Beach's Fine Chocolates is a food production company that has made quality traditional British chocolates since 1920. Andrew, hello. Hi there. Well, happy 100th birthday. Um, it's good to have you Thank on the you. show today. <laughs> we might as well dive straight in. What does the word leader mean to you? Um, the word leader to me means somebody who all the people who are around you have confidence in. Because I think the most important thing about being a leader and about leadership is, is being able to get people to believe in you sufficiently to carry out um, their functions or achieve the objectives that you set for them um, jointly with them normally if you're a good leader um, and uh, and then to to progress it towards the completion of the of the objectives and how do you inspire that trust in your staff um, well the way I first of all inspired it in the staff I mean when, when I first took over the business um, probably about five years ago now, um, we inherited a, a situation where there'd been a little bit of, um, I suppose, a, 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 a lack of inspiration, I guess, from, from the top. So we had to go into, well, what I did basically is go into the canteen and do a, quite a lot of presentations to the staff standing at the front of the room, explaining to everybody exactly what our objectives were, how we were going to achieve them and what their role would be in that. And then we took questions and answers from everybody. And uh, to start with, obviously, there was a bit of distrust about the motive behind some of the objectives. So we covered all those questions one by one. And um, and then following those meetings, I then spent quite a bit of time going around the shop floor, talking to individuals, you know, covering the issues that we'd spoken about, and basically focusing on what I was identified as being, or who I identified as being the most um, difficult people perhaps to, to accept some of the changes that we were going to put in place. And um, over a very short period of time, I gained the confidence of a lot of people, um, all the people in the factory. And, um, and we saw some major cultural changes, which um, were visible quite, quite, quite well on TV programs and things like that that we actually uh, became involved in very shortly after I took it over. So it's very important to foster collaborative workplace, would you say? Well, collaborate, I, I think trust can only be obtained from people that you're working with if you, if you see them as team members. And a very dictatorial sort of top-down attitude is one way of sort of one-way leadership. But my, my belief has always been that to get proper change and um, sustained improvements in a business, um, you have to bring people with you. And the only way you can bring people with you is if they share your vision and they believe and trust that you are the person who's actually going to help to lead them to that point. Uh, and of course, that is a, that is a good point uh, to lead into our next topic. Uh, when you were first starting out in your career, was there a particular individual who inspired you to lead the way that you do today? Um, I suppose not particularly one 
one individual in particular, but a number of people that I worked with. Um, I mean, everybody will know of people that they've worked with who've been more inspirational than others. And my, my career started out actually as, uh, as a change consultant. And for many, many years, well, about 30 years, <clears throat> I worked in, um, on, on large projects change programs in big organizations, mostly PLCs and things like that, and later in later years with, with hospitals as well. And whenever somebody comes in from the outside of the business to make change in an organization, there's a massive mistrust about what their objectives are and what the objectives of, of that company are in bringing somebody else in from the outside. And I used to do exactly the same as I explained that I did with the chocolate factory, and that was to present... Um, the, what we'd found in an organization, first of all, in other words, what were the issues people had identified for themselves that were effectively constraints within the organization, and then to share that information with them. And that sharing process makes them feel as though you're not just taking information from them and using it in, an, in another way, but you're actually feeding back to them what they've actually said. And once you've got to that level, you can then say, right, we, we all agree that we need to do this, 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 this and set out the priority of those objectives. Then the next stage is then to get them to go along with you. And that's when the presentation is important. So we'd have regular meetings with all the staff or key members of staff who would then be backed up with, say, written documentation because you can't always trust that um, the message is going to filter down <clears throat> to everybody that you want it to filter down to in the same way. So I used to construct a sort of short list of, of notes, summary points of the objectives, how we were going to achieve it, who was involved, what the responsibilities would be, and then use the conversational presentations and feedback meetings to actually present those changes and get people's feedback directly about how they, how they felt about it. And what I'm looking to do, what I was looking to do on all those occasions is to identify and flush out any negativity or suspicion or concern because if you deal with all those concerns, suspicions, negativity at the time that you're trying to present it, it goes a huge way towards making a, a cultural change, which is going to be lasting. And culture is so embedded in most organizations, it's the hardest thing to, to change, really. So um, it has to be done in a, in a specific way, um, as, I've, as I've sort of outlined. And I met. Among the colleagues that I worked with, I met certain individuals who had the skills um, naturally. I, had, um, I met other people who learned those skills, but basically the same principles that they had learned or were naturally gifted with um, were the same kind of um, skills that you need to make those changes happen and to change the culture. And uh, all the projects were very successful. All the change programs achieved their objectives. And uh, the savings quite significant on some of the projects that we did. Now, on a wider scale, who would you identify as the greatest leader, living or dead? The greatest leader, living or dead? Well, I know it's a difficult one. <clears throat> yeah, it is actually, because you can think of very charismatic people who have been very bad people and some charismatic people have been very good people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I have to say that one of the most inspirational leaders that ever lived has got to be Nelson Mandela. I mean, to come back from what he suffered 
um, in South Africa. I, I was actually working as a consultant in South Africa for many, many years. I went over there in 97 and um, continued working there till about, about 10 years, mm-hmm. 12 years, you know, big, big change programs with Vodacom company, uh, the telecoms company, the uh, automotive and the airline industry. And um, throughout that period, um, not only inspirational, but, uh, you know, the change that uh, he inspired in other other leaders, I think, was, was, was quite visible. Do you feel that Mandela's legacy is slipping away in South Africa? I think it slipped away a while ago. I mean, the, the trouble with some countries is that there is corruption um, and, I don't know, um, Things uh, people get undermined. Um, their intentions are undermined, and um, I don't know. It's a difficult one. That one. <laughs> yes. well, the only other difficulty we have right now is that our time together is very quickly drawing to its close. But before I let you go, what does the next twelve months have in store for Beaches Fine Chocolates? Well, we are pushing ahead with our export plans. Um, the company has been around for a hundred years year, as you said at the very beginning, and in that time, it's only in the last four years that we started exporting. I don't know what they were doing before that, I have no idea, because the product lends itself extremely well to, <clears throat> to exports. British chocolates are known around the world for their quality, so my intention over the next two to three years is to push export sales in America, um, Canada, all the countries that we normally export to anyway, all the people that pay you well, basically. Um, and to concentrate on those. And I'm hoping that in, within about two to three years that more than 50% of our business will be export-based. Well, especially at this time when we're looking to uh, draw new trade deals, it will be a very interesting project, I'm sure. And of course, Andrew, we have to have you back on the show to talk about that more in depth uh, in the near future. Andrew, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'd be glad to. Thank you very much indeed. It's been pleasure. That was Andrew Whiting, chairman of Beach's Fine Chocolates. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Jeff Hurst. Uh, we're joined uh, today by uh, David Blunkett, Lord Blunkett, former Home Secretary, former Education Secretary. David, thank you very much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Uh, it's always a pleasure. But uh, since we are talking around the theme of Leadership, it would be a remiss of me if we didn't start with the leadership election going on in the Labour Party. Apart from, I'm sure your delight that a certain someone is leaving a post, what are your thoughts on it so far? Well, I think the party membership have got to make a very clear decision. Uh, are they in, in the stands watching or are they on the pitch playing? And if they want to play, then the two candidates that are in for the future are Lisa Nandy and Keir Starmer. I'm personally backing Lisa because I think she's a brave woman with a tremendous amount to give. She's got really good, positive ideas. I like them because they're about building from the community rather than command and control from the centre. They're about a new form of social democracy and socialism rather than trying to replicate a failed past. And she can reach out to people that others can't. So... I'm I'm giving her my backing. I think Keir Starmer is very professional, mm. very able, and presents extremely well. And I, I hope that one of those two 
uh, actually come through in the election on the 4th of April. Uh, there has been a lot of criticism, especially from uh, four uh, candidates a little further left um, than them, who've criticised even the last Labour uh, uh, government as being part of 40 years of Thatcherism. Yes, I think it's really unfortunate, uh, particularly when new MPs come in having seen large swathes of their colleagues lose their seat, uh, to roll up the 13 years of Labour government with everything that I'm so proud of. I mean, I, we, we were not neoliberals or anything like it. We were able, in the first 10 years certainly, uh, which I played a part in, to be able to turn the economy around, to invest in health and education, to be able to transform people's aspirations and their hopes for the the future. And that included ensuring people got the minimum wage, which we never had before. Sure start to nurture youngsters from the most moment they were born, transformation in the quality of education. And all these things actually add up to helping people to improve and change their lives for the better and anyone who thinks that's not good and that isn't a government to be proud of needs to answer the question, what chivalet is it that you would want that would actually have done more to change those lives? I can think of two or three myself in terms mm. of uh, dramatically taking on uh, inequality, although half a million children were taken out of poverty in those years. I can think of being even tougher on crime, even though I was dubbed as one of the tough home secretaries, because the people that I cared about most were, on the whole, not exclusively, but mainly the victims of crime. I can think about taking on the very, very rapidly growing transnational power of the big tech companies, which we still need to work through in terms of how we do that from a, a single nation just off the coast of Europe, and how we work internationally without getting caught up in wars we don't want to be involved in, but how, how are we international in a way that ensures that we play our part in making a better life for humanity as a whole rather than disengaging and becoming alien from the rest of the world? Those are big questions for the social democratic left, particularly with artificial intelligence and robotics changing the world of work forever, I think, in the next 20 years. Uh, an ageing population. Labour got 18% of the over 65 vote in the general election. Just 18%. It's staggeringly... It's extraordinary. Staggeringly bad. Um, and and climate change, which we all know is going to be either a big gain or a terrific political trauma. We've got to take people with us. No matter uh, which political party it is, the changes that will occur in this decade especially will determine their future ideologies, certainly. And sp speaking of your time... Uh, as Home Section in government. Um, you worked with so many different individuals of all political stripes and none at all. Is there someone, and on the theme of leadership, that stands out to you that embodies some of those qualities you described earlier? Yes, I mean, I, it's on the theme of bottom-up, it was some of the most inspiring uh, head teachers and classroom teachers who, in really, really difficult circumstances, were actually transforming the life chances of children. By inspiring those children to want to learn, to, if you like, lighting a candle inside them, uh, giving them a, a, a window on the world, which created an inquiring mind and an understanding that the world was their oyster, that they could do things with support. My, my philosophy has always been 
mutuality and reciprocity. We we need mutuality to support each other. We need reciprocity in terms of understanding that we don't just take, we, we give a lot as well. And I suppose that really comes down to uh, if you're prepared to do something for yourself, we're prepared to do something to help you. And that's fundamentally in education, but it is in all sorts of walks of life as well. So you can have innovation, you can have entrepreneurship and creativity in, in business, you can have the way in which people turn things around for themselves. Small businesses have done that, the contribution to uh, new ways of doing things, of thinking differently about our economy. Th those are all grit to the mill. Those are the things we need to do. And we can do them together. It's not that you're on the side of the devil if you're an entrepreneur or you're on the side of the angels if you work in public services. We, we are mm. dependent on each other. Oh, you can't have one without the other. Yes. Um, and I think to coin a term, uh, uh, extraordinary, ordinary people, and especially when it comes to giving your answer, David, to uh, teachers, to carers, people that honestly don't get the recognition they deserve on a day-to-day -day basis. And without them, half of society wouldn't function. Completely. I, I call it civil society, which functions even when government isn't functioning. It's, what, it's the glue that holds things together it's people working and living and having their being together and recognizing that they are dependent on each other i've obviously met incredibly inspiring leaders in a different vein i was very fortunate to have met nelson mandela three times uh i met bill clinton a number of times both of whom in very very different ways were inspiring leaders i've met people in leadership positions who couldn't take a decision to save their lives uh, tony blair famously said in the, his conference speech the year before he stood down as Prime Minister, and I, I knew exactly what he meant. He said the worst ministers are those who won't take decisions, and anyone in a leadership role needs to, A, know why they're there, what they intend to do with the uh, authority mm. that goes with being a leader and a manager, and then how to draw people in as a team to be able to implement it so that it's a team approach. It's not someone out on a white charger. It's someone who can mobilise, motivate, provide incentives for people to feel that they're part of the solution as well. Uh, and I think whether it's politics, whether it's business, whether it's sport, it's exactly those qualities that you need to succeed in any of them. Yes, it is. And if people recognise that and they have a clear idea themselves, they, they have and build, because you can't build, leadership qualities... They know how to manage their own time and their own emotions because we all, from time to time, feel like really losing our temper. And I don't pretend for a minute over the years <laughs> that, that I haven't. How, how to control your own feelings and emotion and how to bring the best out in other people's. How, how you work out that people who are really good don't threaten you. They compliment you. People who have complementary skills to you are really valuable and I suppose the ability to listen not just for its own sake mm. but to listen because you are conglomerating I suppose you would call it plagiarizing thoughts ideas ways forward from everyone around you I often think that um, football managers wouldn't do too bad a job if they actually talk to the fans after the game 
Well, everyone <laughs> knows, uh, David, you know, you're a uh, big Sheffield Wednesday fan. It I know. Can't be easy having to hear the it praise of Chris Wilder and Sheffield United every week after No, I, it isn't, although it's damn good for Sheffield. So I'm being a bit magnanimous at the moment. That's very good about of you. Sheffield United in the Premier League because it, it, it does change. It lifts the image of the city internationally. If you're not just because it's Sheffield United, but because if you're playing Liverpool uh, and you're playing Man City then that's a global audience. You're immediately beamed across the world. So that's good. I, I, I could cry sometimes. We can, we can beat uh, Brighton, Premier League side, in the FA Cup at Brighton. We can beat Leeds at Leeds. I was there when we beat them 2-0 in January. And then you can lose 5-0. And then you lose 5-0 at home to Blackburn and half the fans were out of the ground by, by half-time. What, what would a manager blanket say in this situation? I, I would have asked myself a very simple question. What went wrong with motivating those players so that when they came out on the field, they walked instead of ran? They didn't have any of the passion they'd had the week before at Leeds. They showed no drive and incentive to take hold of the game. What, what went wrong with the same players who'd played very well the week previously and if you could answer that question and there may have something may have happened who knows something during the morning before the game started something may have gone sour you get the answer to that question and you then start to ensure that we never never do this again well i'm a chelsea fan so i'm beginning to feel your pain at the minute um (laughs) but i would like to pick up on another point you just made actually david about choosing a strong team people that compliment you a lot of criticism that uh, Theresa May got as Prime Minister was that she tended not to pick perhaps the more ambitious, the more uh, 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 people uh, uh, ministers that might well challenge her. One of Boris Johnson's, for all his faults, uh, he has been said in the past, he's a man that picks people that are good at their briefs. Do you agree with that? Well, I'll reserve judgment on that until I see the outcome of the reshuffle, which as we record this podcast has not yet happened Mm. and I imagine I I would be very surprised if he didn't have quite a brutal reshuffle not just to get people in who he likes but people who are going to be really sparky and able and clear at doing the job because you can have all the best ideas in the world you can pronounce on what you're going to do but if you haven't got leaders in those departments prepared to do it if they're just toadies by the way and there is a tendency a new mm. prime minister large majority got to be very careful that you don't pick people because you're receiving the echo of your own voice uh, when you're speaking to them but get able people in I, I, I won't comment on some of the less able but there are <laughs> clearly in the cabinet as i speak at the moment people who are really just not up to it i mean incidentally anyone who won't be cross-examined by decent journalists on the BBC, changed their minds recently about mm. Sky, <clears throat> isn't worth their salt. If, but part of being cross-questioned is to demonstrate to yourself that you've got a grasp of your brief, that you believe in it, and that you can persuade people of it. And if you can't do that under real cross-examination rather than sitting on the sofa a, for a, a, an easy morning television program, get out of the business. You know, don't don't do without it. a doubt. Yeah.
Uh, that's and also I should add that is how uh, Leaders of All Stripes earn that respect in the first place. But there is a question, isn't I'm there? I'm trying to answer the questions. That's, <laughs> that's what I always tried to answer the or questions. Or be very good at avoiding them. Either way. Um, oh well, the, the way of avoiding them is to take it head on and say, "I'm I'm not going to answer that question. Explain why." Not quite uh, <laughs> the um, and I think one of the great things about uh, the Leeds Castle, especially, is that. Um, it takes and talks to people, but again, from all different backgrounds, leading something very different, whether it's a charity, whether it's a business, whether it's in politics. There comes points, though, and David, you must have experienced this, whether it's leading Sheffield City Council or as Home Secretary. When people are looking at you for leadership, where do you get your strength from? I think there's something inside all of us. There's a tenacity, there's a an ambition, there's a desire to get things done, to make a difference inside you, whether you're in public service, the charities, or you're driving a business that actually says, this is why I get up in the morning. So you've got to have something internal to yourself. The, the second is the satisfaction you get back because you do from seeing things change for the better. You, you can take pride without being egotistical. There's nothing wrong with being proud of what you do and to want to do it even better. And that's why you need both sharp minds around you. In my case, it was special advisors as as well as ministers. I pretty well picked my ministers. Sometimes Tony asked me to take people who I was a little bit iffy about and we had to meld people into the team. I was able to pick all my own special advisors and that really did make a difference. Mm. But in, in the end... You've got to like what you're doing. I mean, the, the, the people who are un, unhappy in their skin, they, they, it's very difficult to perform if you're in the wrong business or in the wrong department of a business or if you're really hating teaching or in politics, you, you're just in the wrong department. I was very lucky because education and employment were my first loves in terms of what I wanted to do and I got the job for four years. I'd then come to the conclusion that there were really big challenges for us, it turned out even bigger than I expected with the attack on the World Trade Center mm. three months after I became Home Secretary. But the big challenges of security, of reducing crime, of dealing with the development of positive citizenship, which also had a readover in terms of immigration, the kind of things that change people's lives either for the better or the worse. And you don't get everything right. That's the other thing you've got to recognize, which is why... Being part of a broader team, being able to take criticism but not always accept it <laughs> because otherwise you blow with the wind, that, that, that's the, the measure. And I think if we can share those traits, those experiences, those different elements through the Leadership Council, if we can get people from very, very different leadership managerial roles and delivery roles to actually be able to share that experience, everyone will gain something from it because that dialogue will inform, it will avoid people reinventing the wheel, it will take people a lot further than the, the niche, for good or ill, the niche that they're in at the moment. Um, David, the very, uh, in a couple of minutes we have left, um, I will be mean and put you on the spot and ask you for predictions perhaps in three things. What will happen in the Labour leadership contest? How will the next few months go for the government after Brexit? 
uh, well, after we leave the European Union on the 31st of January, and where will Sheffield Wednesday finish in the league? Lord above. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure which is the most difficult of those <laughs> questions. I, I've already in indicated where my support is for the, the Labour leadership. If we take it at the end of January 2020, Keir Starmer has clearly got, a, got off to a very, very um, strong start. I think, however, it will be very much down to who can reach those parts of the Labour Party membership that came in on the back of Jeremy Corbyn's election in 2015 to that post, who can be persuaded that what they want to see and the change, the big changes they'd like to enact can only be brought about in any form if we win and we win back the people, the tragic loss of people on our side uh, mm. in December 2019. Uh, and that, that's got to be Lisa Nandy or, or Kia. On, on the, um, the, the next few months, I think that the government will probably do quite well. I, I, I think that there are real dangers ahead in just having 11 months to negotiate trade deals, especially with bellicose pronouncements about we're not going to have alignment, as though alignment in itself is a bad thing when some of it will be very good. So I think there are dangers, but I think there's quite a bit of momentum going with the government at the moment, and that will be reflected in relationships, in doing deals in Europe and facing outwards to the rest of the world. Sheffield Wednesday, God help me. I mean, you know, how is it that two of the things that are most important to me, other than my family and loved ones, is football and, and politics. I think Sheffield Wednesday will be hard-pressed now to get into the playoffs. If we do, I think we could pull it off. But I am really reluctant. And I think on that prediction, your reputation will be judged. Lord Blunkett, thank you very much for joining us God today. God bless you, Jonathan. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.